You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. The uh, weather-affected uh, event on Wednesday, uh, and particularly for the panel for being able to also be available, and for M Pavilion for making it available. We really thought uh, it was really important to have this opportunity to have a kind of informal conversation with Peter. Uh, we're, there is an lecture next Tuesday that Peter's delivering, but it's quite sold out, so this is a really great opportunity to, for a much more intimate sort of group and, and conversation to take place. I want to start off just by saying, first of all, thank you to Martin Hook, who's the Dean of the Faculty at RMIT for Architecture and Design. Architecture? Architecture, Urban Design. Uh, and I'm sure most of you know who Martin is and all the work that he's done at RMIT, but also in, in professional practice and such. Uh, but part of the reason Martin's here is because he has a really long-standing relationship with Peter Cook, and hopefully we're going to get into some of the really savory background information that we've always wanted to know uh, with that. Also, to a welcome to uh, Dr. Christine Phillips, um, and uh, again, a member of RMIT on the faculty there, but someone who is also very knowledgeable both about the work of Peter Cook and, and uh, Archogram and so on and so forth, but also from a younger generation to see where some of these ideas, some of these architectural investments, where they exist and, and what relevance they have to us uh, today. I'm not going to say much about Peter Cook because you wouldn't be here if you didn't know already who he is. And clearly, uh, the relationship and the knowledge of Peter Cook as part of Archigram and all of the work. But if I do say a few things, what I want to emphasize instead of anything to do with Archigram is really Peter Cook, uh, the world's best educator uh, in architecture. Uh, I mean, you know, I think as a educator myself, I feel very proud if I have dozens, maybe even multiple dozens of great students that's gone through. Peter probably has more than a thousand great students who have come out of his teaching that are now doing important and significant work. Uh, from the time that I first met Peter uh, at the AA and all of the students and the groups of students that went through the AA to the Städelschule in Frankfurt, and then really significantly the complete turnaround that he orchestrated at the Bartlett uh, at University College London. Um, and what that has done to totally transform that institution uh, to what it is today, but really couldn't have happened without Peter's presence there and making that pivotal transformation. And finally, just to end, and I hope this is part of the conversation today, is to forget about Peter as an educator and talk about Peter as an architect and the work that he's done around the world, but particularly the work that he's done already in Australia up at Bond University, the new projects that are coming up north and out west and who knows where else, uh, because I think this is a really momentous moment in the, the development of Peter Cook, the architect, of the amount of projects that he's starting to be commissioned for, and I hope we can hear more about that. I'm going to turn it over to Martin to start the conversation off. Uh, and I have to warn you, we are going to leave at exactly uh, 7.45 because Peter has a dinner engagement. So apologies in advance if we, I just grab him and rush off with him. Uh, but enjoy the next 55 minutes. Thanks, Don. And yes, uh, reiterate everyone for coming along this evening. It's a beautiful evening for us to be sitting around for a chat. Um, Peter, I'd, uh, I think the last time we sat on a stage together was in front of 6,000 Indian architecture students um, in a very strange air hangar south of Chennai. And I'm talking 6,000 students. Like, you couldn't see the back of the room. Um, and I've thought about that and thought about this evening and just in terms of, of really that, that notion of how you travel around the world and what you see in a travelogue scenario and how you go and take something from each place and observe in each place and how that feeds both your imagination but also the context of the work 
and then to be self-indulgent, what you see when you come here and, and your experiences in an Australian context? Well, it's, it's, if this evening is to be sort of bearing all or bearing some of all, uh, I'm not quite as benign as, as, as you painted. I mean, my, my wife, who's not English and, and knew me when she was a student, of mine, dare I say it, and, and uh, <laughs> uh, said, before I married you, I thought you were very cosmopolitan. <laughs> now I'm married to you, I know you're just as prejudiced as the rest. I say, well, I'm not prejudiced, but I have had 14,000 students, and there are certain, let, let us say, repetitive characteristics. <laughs> um, and I will make several admissions which are probably politically very incorrect, but are honest, <laughs> since this is honest evening. I don't like noisy, smelly places. I'm not, I have no wish to go to North Africa, because I don't think I'd like it. But equally, I don't have no wish to go to the Channel Islands, because I think they would be unbelievably boring. On the other hand, you can send me to Tokyo, or Los Angeles, or Berlin, etc., as many times as you want to, because I... I I think being an old person, that you, you want to go back to the places that you can still ring more out of. I'm fascinated by places where there's an obvious paradox. So that um, I think one, one of the countries that I most enjoy is, is Japan, and particularly Tokyo, but also beginning to get to know Kyoto. And, and the thing that has struck me over 40 years of visiting there is that the Japanese are very much like the English. They are apparently polite... They are apparently inheriting their culture from ma the mainland. They apparently they have a king and all that rubbish and stuff. Uh, but actually, they're piss artists. And, and they, they, they're incredibly funny behind the scenes. And they love robots and, and gossip and, and <laughs> stupidity. Exactly like the British. They also drive on the left and it's damp and, 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 and so on and so forth. So, of course, there's a, there's a kind of complex thing, which is you travel and you appear to be polyglot, and you appear to be picking up all these aspects of different cultures, but what you're actually doing is moseying in onto the ones where you can see a connection with your own culture, which isn't probably what you expected me to say. But uh, <laughs> So again, Australia is a wonderful paradox, because we built a building up, up the road, as you know, and everybody paints the picture of you know, Aussies being full of sport and you know, relaxed and all that. I have never worked, though to advantage, with as pedantic a group of, of civil servants and locals and people telling you not to go on the site even if it's your site. On the other hand, they did the best joinery work, some of the best concrete work, and they swear like buggery at you, but they do it rather well, whereas simultaneously we were uh, doing a building in Austria where, you know, there's all this tradition and crafting, and, but actually they, they're their sites are dangerous. There was a fire on the roof of our building, and I nearly killed myself on the piece of glass, etc., etc., and they don't build it as well. Now, that is a surprise, so you have to constantly readjust these, these kind of labels that everywhere has. Now, you know, the UK was supposed to be a calm place, and just look at the, 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 the news in the last few days. You know, it's gone bonkers. Uh, does it answer your question? Sure, it's a well, start. <laughs> I did want to pick up on, Martin, your point, because uh, a few years ago I did go and visit um, Crab Studios Design, the Aberdeen School of Architecture at Bond University. I'd never been to Bond University before, which was quite a strange campus. And I did wander around that school, which I have to say I found quite delightful, but I felt there was a bit of a Queenslander house to it. And I was quite intrigued by that because I got the sense that you really understood the climate and you had somewhat absorbed some of the, the local architecture. I don't know if that was just... Well, I have to say that I had gone to Queensland the first time in 86 and I taught there for five weeks and I hung out with people who took me all over the place. I mean, I did see a lot of stuff, particularly some very quirky stuff up in Rainforest, which I'm not sure it's still there, but it was very kind of hippie, funny, dangly, people with corks on the hat, whatever, Woody. but crocodiles, Woody. you name it. And, and I got a, also I got a certain vibe from the uh, Sunshine Coast because that reminded me of certain parts of southern England where it's a bit gentlemanly, but also a bit crazy. And the fact that I can't remember his name now, but there was a very interesting older architect who'd done some stuff up there who had been an alcoholic and had done stuff 
almost as good as the Smithsons. And then he'd chilled out. He got a, I can't remember his name, but he got an uh, Australian gold medal, this geezer. Beryl. Beryl. And he did some amazing, his buildings were extraordinary, quite really very original. But as soon as he'd, he'd cleaned out, he started being ordinary. Uh, that's not saying all Queenslanders who clean out get ordinary, but I had met a lot of you. Um, but nothing particular. I mean, you long enough to know that it rains like hell, and then suddenly it doesn't rain like hell, and it gets very dry, certain things. But I don't think anything very magic. I think that we, in a funny way, Gavin and I, and Gav's a very key part of the design, designing team, we... Um, we follow, sort of followed first principles, but notice that it rains <laughs> differently. Notice that the, the, the sun comes from the north, which is a pretty basic thing to notice. Notice that there are, there's a sort of slope going here and funny people doing that and people like to sort of loll on uncomfortable seats and stuff. There's certain things that you would not do there uh, that you would do in Frankfurt or you would not or you would do there that you wouldn't do in North London. Uh, but not anything specially. Uh, I think that there has been this thing, and it was, it was uh, many decades ago, where a lot of English people were looking at the sort of Australian drifted tin roof. I mean, even in the 80s, I was looking at Australian drifting tin roofs and stuff, drifting and hanging and coming from the sheep sheep uh, station stuff you know it of course of, of which Merkut, you know becomes a key guy but not no, actually Merkut's a bit Miesian so I think there are other more interesting people uh, and a very interesting quirky architecture which I have not seen but but was Queensland related which went right up into Papua New Guinea it's a very strange if you know where to look there's some very strange buildings uh, not consciously strange, like the stuff here, but, but kind of just <laughs> strange, like odd, like, oh, you look, it's not sort of, that's Saturn, that's Saturn, isn't it exciting? It's kind of, oh, that's strange. What's going on there? Does that answer your question? Not it really. It does. I mean, you also touched a little bit about your observations of people and how they behave. I mean, is that something on your radar? Because a lot of your buildings do really focus on how, you know, creating spaces for different events and opportunities and maybe sort of well, naughty activities and serious activities. And I'm imagining when you go to different cities, you are paying attention to that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean the, the key thing is not the lecture, it's the meal afterwards. Yeah. And looking yeah. around the bar and seeing what's going on. And... and uh, I think when I was a student and a young teacher, there was a period when sociology was a very, very big thing in, around the A and so on. I was completely disinterested in, in that. But as time has gone on, you can't have thousands of students. My first year of teaching, my first year, which was a full-time year, and my boss did a, did a nervous breakdown. I was la landed with 85 AA diploma students ten of whom were my age or older. That is baptism by fire. You were just holding hands of people. You were just going through their traumas, their psychology. I didn't draw for a year, basically. And over the years, you begin to be, you know, first of all, you're, you're not irritated, but you have to just hold hands. And then you start to be interested in certain syndromes. And then eventually, you can sort of see it coming. You know, you see somebody twitching in the corner. You say, right or somebody grinning inanely, or somebody, you know, flirting with this person, but actually with that person. All these funny things you watch out the corner of your eye. If those of you going to the lecture on Tuesday will see that I did, as part of the submission for the Bond competition, I did 25 cartoons. The, the people in the studio say, you've got to do some of your cartoons. I, I have, with great delight, I think there are five of them that come up in the lecture which is real life imitating my cartoon, including one of me making hand gestures that I'm accusing in the cartoon, some boring fart of doing, but I'm doing it. Uh, and I think you do, you know, I think you do watch all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, in a way, 
And we're currently doing another little university building in Bournemouth, which is a startup for startup companies, innovation studio, where again you can predict that there will be nine or ten little groups of three or four competing with each other, hiding from each other, sort of sending each other up. And we've given them each a, 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 about a third of a meter increment of platform and some of it different shapes so that they are together but they're not quite together. And you watch groups like that and you see how it goes. And, and um, so the cartoons are, in, in the case of the architecture school, I mean, what a, what a thing to do. You teach in architecture schools for decades, you run a couple of them, and then you do the job. You, a lot of it, and even Gavin taught for 10 years. So it's anecdotes. You know, and you sort of have funny, act and you say, yeah, funny old room that they've got a Cooper unit. That's quite useful, because it looks, you know that funny corridor that's upstairs that's at uh, uh, UCLA? That's, you know that funny old sort of dungeon thing at the bar bit? That, and you sort of say, you say, that's not a bad idea, or that's terrible. Hey, you know that, why did, why was that good? You don't follow the book. You say, oh, there must, there's got to be somewhere to hide. There's got to be somewhere to reconfigure. There's got to be somewhere to have a spooky conversation. There's got to be somewhere to have a sort of not quite curriculum set up so that you sort of have a, a scoop where you go into it. And maybe somebody puts something on the wall official. Maybe they don't quite, you know, rather than saying that's curriculum, that's happy time. <laughs> and I I, I, I I mean, I can sit here looking at you guys, and I will, without you knowing, or maybe <laughs> home in on a sort of somebody looking a bit glum, and somebody looking a bit, you know, quizzical, and somebody looking as if they're going to go to sleep, and somebody looking as if they need a drink, and somebody, you know, shading their head from the sun, but there's no sun. And I think that's a funny thing to do. <laughs> it becomes more, you know, it, it, it replaces... Uh, uh, considering, you know, Vitruvius or something. But it, isn't that also tied into your propositions about the narrative that exists behind mm. your buildings? Mm. And everything gets a name, right? It doesn't exist mm. and let it, unless it's got a name. So Help sometimes if you give it a name. Sometimes if you, you say, this is... I mean, there was a scheme that Christine, CJ, Lim and I did together uh, with Gab and Gavin. Four of us worked on three competitions. And we'd done... We were doing this... Comp this office building on the water in Hamburg and somebody said <laughs> we had this kind of potato shaped auditorium and somebody said looks like a beaver <laughs> and then CJ was doing another piece and somebody said looks a bit like a fried egg and from then on for the next month of working on this oh yeah, so we'd say you know there's a um, second stack it's about eight meters from the beaver <laughs> uh, it's probably no no oh, oh, oh yeah that uh, it, it, the Friday, maybe it's got a f the egg's got to sit in a bit more. And I went to give a lecture in uh, Upper Canada somewhere. And indeed, during the course of the lecture, the guy went outside, came back again, uh, in again with a toy blow-up beaver, <laughs> which I felt was a you know acknowledgement. Uh, and uh, th there are all sorts of things we call you know. In fact, I just had a message from our clients. It, uh, AUB, the Arts University Bond, saying, will you give this building a name? Now, that's a bit on the back foot, because normally it's, it's orange, this building. Uh, but it doesn't look like an orange, so we can't call it an orange. As opposed to blue. The As first opposed to was. blue for the other one. As opposed to now another architect doing something on the same size has decided to do his roof pink. Oh. So it's spreading. So the, uh, But... Uh, Yes, I mean, I, I, I like to think of the Graz building as being a bit like a nice old dog <laughs> uh, in the so basket of the town. I mean, I, I always thought it was a bit unfair that it was called the friendly alien. It was sort of... Well, it, that was it's Colin's not, term for it. Yeah, it's not really alien. No, no, it's much... It's, it's a dog. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a Styrian dog. And I suppose that building as well talks about that contextual piece and really understanding how it both reads and contributes and progresses the, the urban fabric. But one of the hilarious things about that, we won the competition, and then uh, part of the competition was to keep 
the iron house, the Eisenhaus house, because it is the oldest piece of cast iron in southern Austria. It's part of the culture of southern Austria, right? That is key. We spent millions propping the bloody thing up. But we then discovered that the panels of it had been shipped in from Sheffield 100 years earlier. So fingers to, to, the, to the indigenous, you know? I, I'm very cynical about it. I mean, I think in the UK we preserve a lot of third-rate stuff because it's old. I mean, I'm not for tearing down everything, but, you know, come on. I think it's gone the other way. It's become a sort of political correctness of, of you know, so you keep some shit-awful thing and then you have to We just keep the facades what? here. You we just, we just keep the facades and yeah, then... Yeah, but, you know, uh, facade, schmassage. Yeah, you know. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think on the on the issue of um, the Kunsthaus and the idea of the city, I mean, uh, we really do... Well, I think the audience would probably um, be keen to hear on, um, and myself, your views on the contemporary city, thinking back to Archie Graham Group, of course, and the walking city, the living city, the plug-in city, all these things um, that really contested the idea of the city itself and whether we actually really needed a city or what the city might look like. Uh, here we are in 2019. I'm sure you are talking about this with your students today. I mean... Yeah, I, I guess you have to deal with my sort of... Uh, what I call creative cynicism, which is the latest drawings I'm doing, and I will show at the end of the lecture black and white drawing, meaning I haven't had time to colour it, uh, which is of a view from the top of a hill in a Tuscan hill town. And it amuses me to discuss that because I notice that a whole lot of people who would like to think of themselves as progressive or anti-progressive, uh, cosmopolitan or not, uh, highly abstract thinking, all sorts of interesting people, they go kind of loopy when they go to a Tuscan hill town. They all go kind of flo intellectually floppy and they love it. So I thought, right, got you. I do my own Tuscan hill town. It has the Campanile. It has a place where you can go and have a drink off, off the side of the picture. It's got a hill going down with Tuscan villas and cypress trees, of course. And when it's coloured, I'll try and get the atmosphere. But it's peacock stuff that makes up the Tuscan hill town. So it's a kind of... And I'm very... In, in, in the constituent parts of that, I'm consciously influenced by some of the stuff that's going on in the Bartlett done by people who can use a computer and are spinning growing materials. They're actually growing material, they're actually spinning. I now, because I can't do the computing, I am acting as a kind of, this is a weird one, I'm, I'm cribbing them. I'm acting as a cartoonist, drawing pictorially pictures of that kind of substance in order to support some of my architectural ideas, because what interests me, vis-a-vis -vis all, there's some, you know, there's amazing stuff going on at MIT, Bartlett, bit at the A, uh, Zurich in particular, SIARC, these, uh, uh, Angerbender in Vienna, amazing stuff, but it's still tending to sit inside the academy, it's tending to be in issues of AD magazine where they all talk to each other, Nice, but you look out the window, there's still the usual crud going up, particularly a, a particular British crud at the moment, which I call Brexit biscuit, <laughs> which is biscuit colored buildings that are sort of have Georgian shaped windows, but they're larger and they haven't got the balls to sort of do anything. I mean, everybody's doing this biscuit stuff. If any of you visited London, it is, t it is tiresome to put it politely. There's no faux Tuscan stuff in your, <laughs> your version of the, the Tuscan. Uh, no, but what I'm saying is that I think that... Uh, I mean, I'm saying two things here. If I come back away from the biscuit, that, that the really interesting stuff going on in these, in these uh, institutions is digitally created, let's say, to a large extent, but it's not being applied very much. I mean, the commercial people, with which I include the current version of Zaha's office... Yeah. Uh, use a bit so they can do a bit of twisting stuff, but actually it's not very fundamental. The really interesting stuff, I think, is to do with making the building and allowing the building to metamorphose, which has always been my interest. And they have the, te you know, the technologies 
almost there. But the high street or the, the city is not, you know, there's a, there's a gap between that and what architects are actually doing. So that we're almost in the parallel position that we would have been, say, 100 odd years ago with plate glass, where there's a few interesting people using it and the other people waiting to see if it's a good idea. That I find exciting, but I think it's moving very... It's the, the, academ the academies are self-referential very largely, and it's, uh, there are a few offices, I mean, like the sort of foster-type offices that do have big R&D sections, and they may pick it up any minute, but I'm very interested in, in, in forward movement of architecture, but I want to be specific about it, not just say, oh, I think it ought to all change and move and be forward. I would point to certain specific techniques that have been arrived at, certain specific materials, and say, okay, somebody, let's see what happens when you do it. Mm. Whereas, you know, if I even look at, certainly if I look at the stuff we've done, it's still craft produced. It might, you know, be metal and plastic and so on, but, you know, the blue building is built like a, warship because it was built in a German U-boat <laughs> factory and they still used you know uh, you weld in a, in, a, in a one centimeter gap just like you make a ship yeah? I want to dwell on technology a little bit um, but also perhaps within the context of Archigram right? so Archigram got there really you know, the log plug predated the internet in the 1960s where it talks about the idea of plugging into an international information network. Um, your drawings of the Cactus Project or, or the average street with grass and growy stuff, veg going up the outside of the building, predates the notions of what we're seeing now with Boeri or Nouvelle's thing up in Sydney. So from my perspective, there is a predictive nature in what Archigram were looking for and drawing, and, and now we've seen it delivered. And I'm wondering if there's any sense of disappointment there or whether there's You're a little pissed off sometimes, yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, there's a particular instance that because uh, about 10 years ago we did a, I think, very interesting project for a vegetated building in the middle of Madrid. We, it was to be a, a very small department store that would use an existing villa as its core, and then would have a water around it, and and all the surfaces were to be vegged. And we got it through planning, and then, you know, Madrid zonked. Meanwhile, because Mr. Herzog and Mr. de Maron do a very nice vegged museum about four years later, and you think, yeah, you're only <laughs> human, you know? It's like somebody else getting the go, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> To, to dwell on Archigram a bit, I mean, the, 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 the team that was Archigram was a very diverse set of individuals. And we, we consistently hear about Archigram, the group, but there was a kind of looseness to the association. Absolutely spot on. And I think that I, I, when looking at student groups or looking at other groups, you know, I think that... Uh, there was a 10-year difference between the oldest and the youngest. Uh, no two had been to the same architecture school. Uh, there wasn't a gay, but the taste in women was <laughs> as different as one to t'other. The taste in music was pretty wide-ranging. It did have certain groupings within that. Uh, taste in reading matter, clothing, uh, Warren Chalk and Ron Heron, before Archigram happened and into it, used to wear uh, Ivy League American clothing and would go to a special shop. Uh, I wore sort of poor provincial student clothing, but with flamboyant ties. <laughs> uh, Dennis always looked like Dennis because he was a sort of anorak character uh, from the word go, uh, though he was the only one who went to a proper university. You see, so you get all these funny things. And then I think it's the mix. I think the mix benefited from the fact that it pulled in a lot of different strands. But there was a sort of, it was a sort of, uh, uh, it was an alliance. It was a sort of uh, agreement that, that we all shared enthusiasms for certain things. 
But it basically from then on, we would then take different takes on them and then group up in two here and three there and one there and four and a half there. But it basically started in a pub or an Indian restaurant. It started in a. It started in what? Uh, do you use the same term here? Greasy spoon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a greasy spoon cash, uh, which isn't there anymore, which had a very tough liver and very horrible onions, <laughs> <coughs> and we all lived nearby. In fact, Dennis, David, and I still live live nearby to this place. Quite odd, uh, and. Um, it started there, and uh, then we got to know the older group by sort of correspondence. And somebody knew somebody's girlfriend or something, but it's very loose. <coughs> and then once the two groups of three joined and contrived to be in the same office, uh, there was an, an amazing situation when we were supposed to be on the site hut of Euston Station, building a station. And guys with hard hats coming in and out, in and out. And there's a room, little room at the side. Warren Chalk had his feet up. And he had all the issues of Casabella, all the issues of Domus, all the issues of Japan Architect, uh, uh, you know, etc. And all the issues of Architecture Dosh of We. And he was just working his way through. And that was wonderful. And I was editing Archigram. Our boss, Theo Crosby, was editing Uppercase. And, uh, and uh, Robin Middleton was going off to Cambridge being a, a librarian, but it was supposed to be a site hut. I mean, it was a complete, you know, we got found out after a couple of years, <laughs> and they folded us. But uh, such, I think, I was talking about this yesterday, somebody, I, I think there's a, a great, I have a great interest in, both from my own experience, but also looking as an amateur historian, on magic moments, magic places, and you, you look at, like when you read Chorsky's Fantasy at Vienna, there was this amazing situation in Vienna roughly between 1900 and 1912, you know, and it was all the guys, Loos and Kokoschka and all Charlie's doing different, and they were all there at the same time and they were all sleeping with each other's people and all the rest of it. Then you get extraordinary situation in, in, um, in Detroit with the early Saarinen office and, and Cranbrook. And you get everybody, you know, Roche, Venturi, Batoya, Eames, they're all there at that place. And then you get the situation that one found in, in Tokyo, roughly in the 80s and 90s, where you've got all these extraordinary characters. And there's a wonderful book by Thomas Daniels that's just come out, which has all the gossip about them. I think these are magic things. I think you have had a certain, and probably laid at the feet of Leon van Skyke, actually, a very particular period here in Melbourne. You may not like all the buildings, you may not like all the flim-flam, but it made Melbourne talked about unbelievably outside. I'm not saying it was necessarily the level of Vienna in 1905 or, or Detroit, but it, 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 I, I, this compounding, it's a sort of... It's not a view of elitism exactly, but it's a view of the hothouse. What is very tiresome in certain periods, is to find everybody's got to be reasonable. They, the, the Nordics have this term, yontilov, which means you mustn't put your head above the parapet. And I'm absolutely dead against that. I have endeavoured to make the schools that I've gone to elitist, meaning not elite because you were born rich, elite because you work your fuck off and you bring something to the party if you don't get out of the kitchen. Now, that's vicious, but it's meant some amazing things can happen. It's, it's a view of culture, it's a view of activity, it's a view of kind of elitism by the fact that you buy your way into it. Because I had to do that myself. I was a grammar school kid who fought my way to get to the AA, you know, in amongst all these sort of smarmy characters. And I still remember the sixth week I was at the AA from Bournemouth. You know, I was a spotty from Bournemouth. Nobody, apart from the other Bournemouth people, talked to you. And then I had a very good crit. And I got party invitations the same day. I mean, it still, <laughs> it resonates, you know, whatever it is, six, six, 60, nearly 60 years later. It's really, it, and I think that forms you. I think that forms you as a personality. You know, I didn't glide into, I had to fucking graft. And I have very little... Uh, patience for people who are 
clever but lazy. I prefer somebody who's not quite as clever but does the most with what they've got. That's my academic position, <laughs> for what it's worth. So what are you doing, what have you been doing with your Melbourne Uni students while you've been here? I mean, you... They seem to listen to me and, and, and John... Um, what's his name? Warwicker, who, who is also from London and is, was a very famous graphic person in London, created Tomato. And I have, I've only met him a couple of times before, but then we start gossiping about this and that and this and that. And then <laughs> these guys say, oh, um, can you just uh, look at my stuff for a few minutes? And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and then you do your thing. But having, you know, I don't know, they have to tell you, but I've been tutoring, giving a little mini bit of lecture each morning then tutoring group and, and gossiping with Morica. But beyond the nuts and bolts, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining those sort of... I always like to think of them as sort of points of resistance that you talk about when there's moments of rebellion or... i tell you one thing about... And they're going to be very naughty now. Uh, one thing about the group I've been with this week, which is, by and large, sorry, guys, the Chinese are doing more than the Aussies. They're more willing to take risks. They might not be able to articulate quite why they're taking the risks. They might be doing a bit of grafty copying. But they're doing the stuff. And the Aussies are doing the chit-chat. I'm familiar with chit-chat. Pay, pay attention. That's what the English Pay attention, locals. <laughs> so watch the Chinese guys. And a lot of the Chinese are here. But watch it because... They know they've got the ball at their feet. They're a bit big to be a syndrome like Vienna in 1905, but one feels that's where the energy is. They might get a lot of it wrong and a lot of it a bit crude, but wow, you go to the Biennale, they're moving so fast. They're doing what we predicted would happen in 30 years, but it's happened now. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about architecture schools. Um, when, when we were at the Bartlett, when you started at the Bartlett, it was crap. Um, the first thing we did on our first day was we had to go and find a chair that was down in the basement that you spoke about before and people painted their own walls and the carpet was crap and you could smoke inside. You mean there was a carpet? There was a carpet. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have said in the past that you can't have a decent architecture school in a decent building. I. I wonder about that. I think, I think uh, what was great about the old Bartlett is that everybody hated it so much that they <laughs> drilled holes in the wall, you know, and didn't care if the door came down, you know. I mean, it did get to a ridiculous state. I started bringing in some pretty known people, and there was an actual instance of Frank Geary sitting on a crit in front of the door <laughs> behind the lift so that every time somebody was coming for the lift, they had to sort of walk around Frank Geary, which is... <laughs> bit unusual, <laughs> sort of pushing it. Uh, uh, but uh, I wonder, I think comfort, I'm not sure about comfort. I mean, uh, Sayoc gets it nearly right where they have a lot of space, but in a funny old building, and, and people walk past the crit. Not quite as uncomfortable as with the Geary case, but you know, there isn't a sort of special corridor. They're giving a crit and people walking. Okay, there it is. And and I think one of the one of the other things that was really interesting uh, about the Bartlett at that particular point in time as well is that because of its proximity to London, it became this melting pot, and people would drop in, mm. uh, and and it would literally be like, oh, Cedric's popping around tomorrow morning. Mm. Uh, I won't be there. Can you entertain him? And notions of Erico and Moss kind of being dragged in and, and just sort of arriving and being able to sit in a, in a crit. And I think there was a potency to the people mm. that was actually driving the engine as opposed to the kit or, or the rooms that things were occurring in. I think now it's all much more kind of, you know, you say, let's get the moss equivalent in and say, we've got to book it, and we've got to book this room, and then your health and safety in the room, and it's on a Thursday, you can't have it on a Thursday because 
You just bloody did it. I mean, sometimes you heard of somebody who was in Edinburgh on their way to Dusseldorf. You say, can you, can you come over tomorrow? And they say, yeah, I'll give a chat at 10 in the morning. Uh, and then somebody might say, but, you know, 10 in the morning and so-and-so's giving a seminar. Tough shit to go there seminar. If you want to go here, Eric Moss, here, Eric Moss. And then I, there was a wonderful lady who's now a professor there who, when she was a young thing, she would knock out almost beautiful constructivist posters at the drop of her hat, you know, instead of saying, oh, well, I have to get the poster people to do the poster and then where will it go? And, you well, know, Laura we'll have to have a sanction to put it on that wall. <laughs> Laura just did a bloody poster, and by five you got the poster, and I stick them in the toilet myself. <laughs> and it, I, I love that. I mean, is that, is that hairy? Is that, I mean, why is that not encouraged? You know, it's all got very circumspect. Everywhere, not just here or anywhere. You know, it's just everywhere. It's all very circumspect. Well, we did manage to reschedule for tonight. Yeah. So. <laughs> so you're in the great tradition. <laughs> rain, rain on Wednesday, right, wheel him in on Friday. Somehow they knew about it. How they knew about it. I wanted to talk about drawing a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. You, know, you wrote the book on drawing. It's called right. Drawing. Right. Um, drawing. <laughs> Buy one now. <laughs> At what point in time do you think that there is a moment where you stop drawing? Or, or how does the drawing of a project uh, drive the way in which the project evolves? Because if you go to our office, it's full of models. And uh, everybody except me can draw on the computer. But, uh, and I'm associated with drawings, and I sell drawings, and I write about drawing. But Often the generative, like if I take the blue building, it's an easy one to talk about. I heard about the job, and I was somewhere, not Australia, but I was on tour, I was around somewhere. And I had a squared exercise board, and I worked the basic organ. It's very simple, anyhow, out on the squared exercise board. And I got back to London, and then I made a bloody great balsa wood model with a, so that the body is that big. And then I ripped the model apart, re-pinned it in, da, 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 got it rolling, and then somebody stuck it on the computer. And some of the drawings that are up in the building that are supposed to be my art drawings, actually done after the event, because <laughs> the client said, we need some, some drawings to put in the program of the symphony orchestra. I said, I'll do a few over the weekend. <laughs> and then uh, the building was nearly finished, you know. Uh, drawing schmoring, you know, I, I think that, the, like I talk about the drawing of the Italian hilltop town, it's the one that's still waiting to be coloured. Uh, it is not specifically a drawing of a project, it includes stuff that is related to projects, and it is a composition done to make a statement, but also to look at what something looks like. So it's doing lots of jobs, which, if you said, well, what is the exact specification and function of that drawing? It would drop apart. It might as well be a calendar. <laughs> but actually, for my purposes, it's answering a lot of my requirements. It's actually something I can talk to and make several statements about. So that is a kind of, what would I call it, conversational drawing. And some, hopefully, something on that drawing will get built. You might get, and, and this I can prove in the past, some things that have appeared on Looney Tunes drawings actually start appearing somewhere on a building. And you need the drawing to have, have that relaxation of thinking somehow. Hmm. And I like drawing, I don't know what pen, I like drawing with a posh pen <laughs> because it. it Flows wonderfully, you can do that. I have actually got a bit of a lecture, not the one com tomorrow, uh, where I'm filmed drawing with this pen. And you go around the corners and you do that. This, a, 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 a free-flowing black ink pen is wonderful. It, it glides in a way that, you know, if you draw with a pencil, it's different. If you draw with a biro, it's different. Da, 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 da. Pentel, different. You do different thing with it, is my claim, anyhow. <laughs> it's a bit <laughs> arcane, <laughs> but, you know. I'm just going to interrupt for a moment. 
so we've got 15 minutes left, uh, and two things are going to happen, hopefully. One is, hopefully, somebody's going to find a taxi for us and have it waiting <laughs> in 15 minutes. But we also wanted to, if possible, open it up to uh, the audience, if there are some questions from the audience. Uh, otherwise, there's more than enough questions here between Christine and, and Martin. Uh, so if somebody, if somebody has a question, please raise your hand. We have a mic in the back here. Uh, we can go, but otherwise, I'll let Martin in. There's a, one question over here in, in, in the front. About technology, um, you talked on the development of digital technology, and now that we can see that buildings not only rotate, they sort of wheel themselves and possibly be virtual. My question is, do you believe that architecture can be a network or a system and exist without physical presence? I certainly think highly significant things that affect our existence and comfort and this, that, and the other can exist without apparent physical presence. I think if, though, if you take away the physical presence, you take away a lot of the theatre. And something I haven't talked about this evening, but which I feel very strongly, is that architecture is theatre. This, this, this Palme Pinos thing is theatre. You know, it's not just an arrangement by which you face me. It's not just her getting off on some wood or something. It is actually, it sets up a certain theater. And you could do that by having a, a, a hologram of a Kame Pinos something, I suppose. And you could say, well, then we can change the theater to that, to that. So there's a sort of case to be made there. But I think there's a certain point at which you do experience things like this obviously this chair that obviously costs threepence to make feels like it costs threepence to make to the <laughs> bum, particularly if you're 80. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are things like that that I think that um, the progressive part of one says, yes, we can make an environment that doesn't need hardware. We can make an environment through smell, through experience, da-da-da-da-da. And then you say, oh, it'd be nice to have a comfy chair, wouldn't it? You know, so and that starts a slippery slope back to hardware because you get make the chair more comfy. And then you make the slope from the grass a bit less dangerous. And then you kind of make something that would not have that thing exploding in a thunderstorm. And then you're back into stuff. And I have a sort of sneaking regard for stuff. I want intellectually to melt the stuff. Uh, and as was mentioned earlier, you know one's love-hate relationship with cities. I think one had anti-cities and non-cities because I love cities. You have it, houses that disintegrate into being non-houses because actually the idea of the house is a very amusing and comfortable point of departure. So you roll all these things over. I think you've got to be capable of not being, uh, not cutting off your nose to spite your face, if you like. Does that add up? <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, Hi. Um, you referred to the architecture of Melbourne as conscientiously strange and uh, flim-flammy, which is maybe contrasted to Brexit beige. and. Alison Brooks was recently here lecturing in Melbourne, and she was kind. I was kind of asking her about her impressions, and she was saying, "You guys are so lucky because we could never get away with any of this in the UK. It's much too uh, conservative for this amount of expression." Could you expand a little bit more on? Well, the I, I have a lot of time for Alison Brooks because she's a. She's not English, of course. She's Canadian, which is interesting. Though she's chosen to stay in England, and. Uh, some of her stuff pushes the brick, the, the biscuit to an edge and then starts getting slightly <laughs> quirky. Uh, her, 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 her building in, is it Oxford or Cambridge? It starts to push it. But uh, I think she's right. You know, I, I mean, the two things that I, one thing I built in England and the second thing I'm building are on a university campus. 
and sometimes you can get away with stuff on the campus that you would never get away with across the street. Uh, and then only just by sort of having a client that fights for you and a particularly acquiescent local planning officer, interestingly. No, it is very, very tiresome that uh, you can do things if they're not seen. I mean, there's a very weird, the late Ron Heron did a wonderful uh, installation, sort of extension of a building. It's very near the A, it's, it's uh, for the Imagination Company. It has this great, but you don't see it from the street. Ron Arad did a quirky, quirky, and actually Alison used to work for Ron Arad, but he did a quirky, quirky studio, does that, but you don't see it from the street. Even Peter Wilson, in his very early days, did quite an unusual piece of house in Hampstead, but you don't see it from the street. So you're allowed to do naughty things if they are not visible from anywhere, <laughs> and only the person inside them or a couple of friends can see it. That is extremely tiresome. Uh, I think it's a, it, it, it somehow, somehow falls in on, on itself, because if you take a long view and you say, if it's caution upon caution upon cautious upon cautious upon cautious, what will happen to the civilization? You know, if it implodes and gets so cautious that nobody does anything, what happens then? Some, you know, the Chinese will come in and do crazy Looney Tunes stuff of their own, what I don't mean this or mine, but some such. And the English say, oh dear, yes, we seem to have lost the plot. <laughs> I mean, I don't say this with glee. I say it with a degree of embarrassment and sadness, actually. I have a lecture which I give, or I sometimes give to the students in one of my nine a year, where um, I talk about the 60-year cycle in England. I say, if you, take, if you go back 60 years from Brexit brick, we had something called Neo-Georgia doesn't look exactly the same, but it had many of the same references. In the middle between that, we had high tech. If you take then the 60 years from high tech behind Neo-Georgian, we had sort of late Victorian, which was very inventive. I mean, I was brought up to hate it, but I don't hate it. I think it was actually a very interesting period. So you get in this oversimplified analysis, but you get a 60-year a jump from jump to that, and then there's a chirpy period and another chirpy period, it's on the six, sort of six-year cycle. That is a sort of optimistic view. Optimistic view saying, well, boring Brexit brick must be starting to play itself out. You guys will get bored with it and do something else, but I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't like to put money on it. I'd like to put money on it, but... I might lose the money. <laughs> um, uh, when you were talking about um, your School of Architecture in Queensland, you mentioned just briefly that um, you were interested in how students were sitting in, like, just on uncomfortable seating outside as just a like a passing comment do, what, what do you mean by that does this do Australians have like a different sort of perception of where to hang out and just stop and is there a different attitude towards like um no I mean I I I, <coughs> I have a particular thing about and probably age I get I I, I don't like uncomfortable chairs <laughs> uh, but I don't see why we should impose uncomfortable chairs on anybody, quite frankly. You know, I think you can always hire a buy a cushion or something. We did, I mean, those of you who are coming on Tuesday, this is not a continuous advert for Tuesday, and I think if you can't get a ticket, I would just show up. <laughs> some of those people who say they're going to come won't come, you know, because they've got something else to do. Uh, you know, th those things are always overbooked. Anyhow, um, there is a project that I did uh, called Comfo Veg, uh, and it it started off as a drawing that then became an installation at SciArt, and it is made of uh, basically strips of 
foam, big rolls of foam rubber that I personally, with eight other people, we pulled the stretch fabric over them. And it rolls around, and all sorts of naughty things were done on it late at night in Sayak, uh, very usefully. And, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, I believe in comfo. <laughs> and I like veg, and I li why not have a club? And then the bit that you couldn't draw was that it was all got audiovisual bugged, but uh, comfo veg clubs, I think, are just the thing. You know, I think every architecture. We tried to do a bit of comfo veg in, in Bond, and they wouldn't let us. They said, no, it looks a bit odd. <laughs> Should have had a bit of comfort veg. Any other questions? Oh, yeah. There's one over there. In your, in your life as an architect, have you ever thought of a change in occupation? To the only other thing <laughs> I ever thought to of become a comic artist because you're not no, no, yeah, when I was at school finishing school and bear in mind I went into architecture school at the age of 16 and never did A levels I went straight to the local art school which had this mini architecture school and uh, the only thing I thought of doing was journalism because I always found it very easy to write uh, and there's a strange this is very personal, but my father, who was an army officer, used to write and had very uh, poor education originally, but he used to write in army magazines, and my son, who is a pop mus music writer, uh, uh, got a very high mark in university for writing essays. He was regularly getting 98% for all his written stuff. So there's a weird uh, writing streak that has run through three generations, which I think is more, it goes beyond pure coincidence somehow, you know? And I, 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 I find it very easy to write. I can write a thousand words in the morning uh, if I know about the subject, and <laughs> 500 words if I don't know about the subject, <laughs> and 1,200 words if I've really got to, and 800 words if I've got the flu. I mean, I'm just a hack, hack writer. I can hack write. Uh, and, and you write, uh, the, the, the trick is to write like you talk. Not a, you, Okay, you clean it up a bit later, but you write like, you just write what you think. And suddenly you say, oh, it seems to be 998 words. But you, you also write very early in the morning, don't you? Yeah, I'm an early morning person. My wife is a late night person. And uh, we never work together, hardly ever work together. <laughs> uh, she will go on into three in the morning and I will be, my best thinking is at about seven o'clock in the morning. My clear, I might not get the leg out till about 7.30, but the think, I got it all worked out at seven o'clock in the morning. If I can get down to the laptop before eight, it's 10 o'clock, it's done. And then it's downhill all the way. <laughs> <laughs> downhill till lunch. Do your last question from anyone? Go on, you go. Oh, put me on the spot. Martin? Yeah, I'll pick one up. Um, tell us about pavilions, as we're in an M pavilion. Uh, I, I think the great thing about pavilions is that you could, rather like being at the seaside, you can do what you don't do in a proper building. You know, and my favourite form is kiosks, where you can do things that you don't do in a proper building, and pavilions extended kiosk. I think the also the thing is, ideally, pavilion is a stage. I mean, it's all stage. I think that when we're in this degree of proximity, in a funny way, not only should it be that, that we're the bit that you're facing, but that lady is part of the theater. That lady with the glasses is part of the theater. That row of, of uh, speakers, I know, which was to do with some installation is part of it. I think it, it, it should be all stage. And it's also clothing. It's also clothing. You know, it's like, here's, it, it, it isn't bound by the foreclosure, as is a building. It, it should inherently be loose. I mean, there's probably a few things like 
you know, it really worries me that had that stuff been there on Wednesday night, it might well have go nasty things might have happened, and I'm a bit scared of things. <laughs> you know, maybe it ought to be in a box, please. Uh, and I think, I, I mean, Carmi Pinos, I think <laughs> I have views about Carmi Pinos because she once came to the Bartlett and gave the opening speech of this after you know, for the exhibition. And she complained because she said, this school is too creative. <laughs> I've never forgiven her for that. I, think. I don't like that. That really annoys me. Okay, can we uh, give a thanks to Christine, to Martin, of course to Peter, and to M. Pavilion for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Donald. You are listening to an M. Pavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.